You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Amen. Thank you, Adam and worship team. And good morning, church. You can be seated. Um, my name is Mark. I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus. And this morning, I want to invite you to Joshua chapter 12. And I'm going to take a minute just to kind of set this up. And I think it would be a very, very safe bet that I could put, I don't know, all the money that Paul Kiel has on the fact that there's probably no one in this room that has ever heard a sermon on Joshua 12. It's not one of those passages you read and you say, oh, I can't wait to teach this. Because when you look at it, it seems like just this list of cities and kings. It's really unassuming. There's nothing, it seems on the surface, real spectacular. In fact, I questioned how much Clint really loves me when I saw it. And this is the one I got. I'm like, I must have done something to offend him. But over the time, my thoughts of this have changed. I know the problem's not with Scripture. I know the problem is me. And how to set this up, we need to see something that helps us understand why does Joshua take the time to give us this really unassuming passage? And the first thing is there are two powerful declarations that bookend chapter 12. And so last week, Josh Mills led us through uh, chapter 11. So if you're in Joshua 12, skip one verse back to the very end of Joshua 11. And this is how it reads. It said, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So for about seven years, Joshua has been leading the children of Israel into all of these battles. But they finally come to the place, it says, where the land had rest from war. Now, I don't know about you, but that's interesting. He doesn't say the people had rest. He says the land had rest. And I got to wondering, why is that? Well, quickly, we want to understand and need to understand that why then is land so important? Well, first, I don't know, obvious might be, well, we have to have land to exist. It provides food. It creates oxygen to breathe. So without it, we could not exist in, in just air. But the second thing is land is important theme all throughout the Bible, actually from beginning to end. Because the land is, what God does, it is this backdrop, this canvas, that we see God's faithfulness and our inability to live out our divine calling. In fact, you actually see this in the very first chapters of the Bible where God creates this beautiful garden paradise. It's teeming with lust vegetation where life can flourish. In fact, after God created Adam and Eve, he gives them the land. What were they to do? They were to rule over it. They were to represent God's rightly and kingly rule over all the earth. They were to trust and to follow all of God's commands. We also see this land is where God dwells 
with Adam and Eve. Scripture tells us that in the cool of the morning, they walked and they talked with him. So in the garden is where we see Adam and Eve, they, they are experiencing God's gracious gifts. In fact, their entire existence, their purpose, their relationship with God was linked to the land that he gave them. I think we could say to live in God's space is to live with God. And to live with God is to live in his space. So they were simply to trust, follow his commands. If they obeyed, God would continue to live with them in the lush garden but it doesn't take long. Because in Genesis 3, we see that they rebel against God. They turn away from life. They embrace death under their own definition of good and evil. They give up the land and the relationship with God. In fact, in Genesis 3, it tells us he sent them out of the garden. So Adam and Eve, in the land, they began experiencing a raging war. But, despite the rebellion, God isn't finished. God is not going to give up. In fact, he has a plan to bring his people back into his presence. But how? He gave them land called Canaan. In fact, in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, we read of God making this covenant with a man named Abram, promising to multiply his descendants and to what? Give them Land. In fact, the purpose is not just to give them land, but God is giving them a place on earth to bring them back into right relationship with him. But it's the same as the garden. Land is this backdrop where we see God's faithfulness and our inability to live out our divine calling. In fact, if you were to look past Joshua, you know what you see? The same results of the garden. God's people rebel. God comes against them and their disobedience, and it results in what? The loss of land. But again, God is faithful to his promises. So he raises up a man named Moses, brings him out of Egypt, out of deliverance, out of exile. But then again, it doesn't take long. And we see their inability to live out their divine calling. In fact, Israel will go through four other exiles. The Babylonians, the Persians, Greece, and eventually Rome. And so land is this backdrop, this canvas where we see God's faithfulness and our inability to live up to the divine calling. But it seems like it's just creating this hopeless cycle. In and out of the land. In and out of the land. But what happens is after 400 years of silence, all of a sudden word begins spreading around the land. There's been born a certain descendant of Abram. This young child, he starts out like any other Jewish boy being raised to obey God's words, to live according to the Torah. But unlike the others, when he's faced with a choice of good and evil, obedience or rebellion, holiness and sin, he chooses perfectly every single time. He loves God the Father. He loves his neighbor. He shows concerns for the oppressed, the outcast, the marginalized. In fact, he's the only person to actually live under the covenant faithfulness that God expected. He remained faithful. 
He chose good over evil, even when faced with the reality of death on the cross. And what we see on the cross is Jesus identifies with being exiled. He never had a home. He then suffers in everyone's place who could not and would not live up to the covenant faithfulness of God. And what we're told is that those that identify and trust in his life and death and resurrection, they are brought into the presence of God once again. And so today I believe that the church, the churches around the world are like these little pockets of promised land. And one day we are told The God, the Father, will send his son back to call his church home and there will be a new heaven and a new forever land. And so Joshua says, and the land had rest from war. So hopefully we understand what he means a little bit better, but when you read that, man, if I was following along this, this, and I come to the place and it says, and the land had rest from war, doesn't it read like the finale? It's like the point in the movie where the credits start rolling, you start gathering up your stuff, and it's time to leave. So Joshua then adds another section. And that's where we have Joshua 12. But if I was to tell you this, there are 16,934 of these in Texas. 3,829 buildings, structures, and objects have them. They're visible in 234 counties across our state, 100 in Smith County, and there's actually one in White House. Would you know what I'm talking about? A what? No. Historical markers. It are these things that are meant to take us to help us remember. But how many of us have actually stopped? You see the sign that says, one mile ahead, historical marker. I've never stopped. In fact, the only way I know there's one in White House is because I Googled it. And do you know where it is? First Baptist Church. I think it was like eight, late 1800s, the church started, and this made me giggle. It was called New Hope Church of Christ, Baptist. Now, I don't know how that works, but it did. They met once a month. But I've never, I've never stopped. I've never taken the time because I'm always in a hurry, ready to get where I need to go. So this chapter, chapter 12, it's like historical markers. And so let's see the first one. But first, it's a challenge just even reading this chapter. I have practiced all week long, and my goal is to get 60, maybe 65% of these names and cities right. So here we go. Historical marker number one, beginning in Joshua 1. And now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise to the valley of Arnon of Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. Shahan, king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon and ruled with Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead. And the Arabah to the sea of Chinaruth, eastward to the direction of Beth-Jesh-Emoth, to the city 
or the Sea of the Araba, the Salt Sea. Southward to the foot of the slopes of Pishgah, and king and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnants of the Rephaim, whom lived at Asheroth and to the Edi, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Selica in the Bashan, to the boundary of the Geshurites, and to the Machathites, and over the half of Gilead to the boundary of Shinon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, doesn't that just grab your attention? Oh, okay. Did I do all right? I've been practicing. But here's the first historical marker. It's about two kings. King Shahan, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Basham. And these were battles that Moses led that you read about in Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy 2. These are the areas located east of the Jordan. And so here's a map. They're showing here that these two areas, or the three areas, on the east side of the Jordan. And he takes us back to the beginning under Moses. Now, why would he take the time to do this? Well, I think it's two reasons. One... I think it's for those on the east side. Most of Jerusalem or most of Israel will be on the west. And he wants them to know the importance of you are still Israel. Even though it happened years ago and we're divided by the Jordan River, you are still Israel. It's the importance of unity. But second, I think each and every battle is a sign of God's power and a cause for Israel to praise. Every single battle. In fact, back in Joshua 4, we saw that remembrance is a builder of faith. And so I think every morning, it was a historical marker to all of those, say uh, you were the tribe of Gad or Manasseh. Every time you came out of your tent or you came out of your structure, you looked out across the horizon and you would remember, I remember when that battle was fought. I remember when God provided us victory there. Every time they, they uh, got together with their herds or they tilled the ground, they would be reminded each and every day of God's faithfulness. And so Joshua puts down a marker. Well, here's marker number two, in verses seven through eight. And he says, and these are the kings of the land of jo whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan. From Gad to the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments. In the hill country, in the lowlands, in the Arba, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev. The land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Prezites, the Havites, and the Jebusites. Now at first glance it just seems like a list of cities that are hard to pronounce. But the gem is in verse 8. The reader wants us to see that God is always faithful to his promises. Right down to every last village and town. And every last border passing over this hilltop. And over here and over there in that valley. 
that we are seeing the fulfillment of God's promise that he made to Abraham over 500 years ago. So this historical marker, I think, is what we see is God's doing faithfulness to his promises. So historical marker one, I would say each battle is a sign of God's power and a cause for praise. You're driving down the road, you see a sign, the next one's going to say, God's always doing faithfulness to his promises. And then you get historical marker three, where Joshua is simply going to list 31 kings. And all I pictured all week long, and I forget what you call it, it's that, that little rectangular thing with the bars, it's got the little beads you, you slide across. Because notice how this reads in verse 9. I just imagine the, the people standing before Joshua and him just simply looking them in the eye and saying this. The king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachesh, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Gedir, one. The king of Hermah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Lebna, one. The king of Abilam, one. The king of Mecca, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapah, one. The king of Hepar, one. The king of Apek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hezor, one. The king of Simran, Miran, one. The king of Ashrath, one. The king of Tanach, one. The king of Megdo, one. The king of Kadesh, one. The king of Jachnam and Carmel, one. The king of Dor and Nathlerador, one. The king of Goem and Galilee, one. The king of Terzah, one. In all 31 kings. Now, at first glance, I would think, yes, this just seems like a boring list of kings, but there is so much more to this list. First, this is another list or historical marker of God's faithfulness. But the second thing is this, that each defeated king is a sign of God's power. It's an itemized list of God's faithfulness. But the second thing I see these kings, these powerful men, this was not a list they ever imagined themselves on. That something had to happen. So I put historical marker number three is this. There must be a dethroning <coughs> for the true king to reign. There must be a dethroning for the true king to reign. So the question we need to ask ourselves, I would say each and every day, is what king in my life needs to be dethroned? 
What king needs to be dethroned so that the true king can reign? Now, church, I'll be excited. I was not excited when I read this the first time. It seemed tedious. It seemed like just a list of cities or kings. But it's so much more important than that. I came up with some important applications for myself that I want to share that I saw in this passage. When was this? Stop, pull over, and take time to remember. The remembrance is one of the greatest builders of faith. So this week I took some moments and I just sat down. I thought about and remembered God's faithfulness to Marla and I over our lives, over our marriage. I took time remembering God's faithfulness to Bethel Bible Church over the last 40 years. I took time remembering God's faithfulness to this campus for the time that we have been there. Take time, pull over, and remember God's faithfulness. But the second thing I saw from this passage is we need to be specific. We need to be specific with our praise. And I find myself often being so general. God, thank you for this food. Thank you for my family. Thank you for all your blessings. Amen. But listen to what Dale Ralph Davis says. He says, if we were to train ourselves to recognize God's goodness, God's goodness act by act, and detail by detail, we would come to think more highly both of God and of the church. Much of our loss of hope comes from failing to see just how much God has really achieved. So church, stop, pull over, take time to remember, and then be specific with our praises. But I said at the beginning that this chapter has two and important declarations or two bookends. The first one was, and the land had rest from war. And they're given then these three historical markers where Joshua tells them to stop, pull over, take time to remember and be specific that God's faithfulness is, should always be a cause for praise. But he doesn't leave it there. Because I don't want to steal the thunder for Clint next week. But look at verse 1 of chapter 13. So the land had rest from war. And on the other book in it says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And then this made me laugh. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. He just wants to make sure. But notice what it says. And there remains yet very much land to possess. He says there is still more to do. In fact, the late Adrian Rogers describes this as act of like walking a tightrope. We need to remember God's faithfulness in the past and we need to give him praise. We need to be specific about that. But he says, but we are not, we are to be careful that we don't just talk about what God has done and how much he has accomplished. That we have to be careful that we're still remembering that there is still much God wants to do. 
So all week long, the great hymn has been playing in my mind about count your blessings, name them one by one. That we need to be careful and we need to be specific and we need to take time to do that. But Joshua is reminding us, be careful that we don't just settle into the status quo. I think he's saying, remember, and at the same time realize there is still much to be done. And I think this is important for us individually, to take time this week and be specific with our praises, but also remembering there is still much to be done. But I think this is really applies to us as a church. If you're a newcomer here, I want you to hear me say, get to know others. Begin to hear the stories of God's faithfulness. But I want you to also know there is still much to be done and this church needs you to accomplish it. Maybe you're an old timer like me. Remember God's faithfulness. Maybe even write it down or take time to share it with those around you and give praise. But be careful to not just live in the past, but to remember there is still much land to possess. Maybe you're here, but not really here. Maybe you are here, maybe even a member, but you've not yet plugged in in investing. I want you to know there is still much to be done. Maybe you're here and maybe for some reason or some circumstance you have found yourself kind of unplugging. I want to say there is still much to be done, much land to possess and to make that effort to get plugged back in. Maybe you're here for some reason or some event you've drifted back into the status quo and you find yourself not investing like you once did. Well, please hear this with love. There is much to be done. And so, church, will you pray with me? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.